0: Well, it's my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking this morning together at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. As you turn there, I'll invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. Stand knowing that in the Scripture, we know the true story of the world, and it's in the Scripture alone. That we know the true story of the world. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. O Lord, we gather today in the name of Christ, For the glory of Christ. And Lord, we pray that we would grow today in the knowledge of Christ. That we as a people who have sung about the glory of Christ, who have prayed this morning based on the blood of Christ, would be shaped according to the gospel of Christ as we hear your word, O God. Lord, fill us with a sense of awe and wonder that You have revealed Yourself to us in Your Word that You have come in the person of the Son as the the living Word. And we have heard, I pray, what You have us to hear. And this morning, I pray for ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive with gladness what you have for us, that we would be a people, that because we have come today, that we are equipped to do the work of ministry. Oh Lord, we pray it in Christ's name and for his sake, amen. You may be seated. It'll take about one month, and then the crying will stop. That was my appeal to the principal of the school I worked at. I was a high school coach, but we were K-12 through on one site, and my job during the day was elementary school PE teacher, and I had about 500 students a day in 30-minute increments, starting from kindergarten through sixth grade. 500 students a day. 30 minutes, and so I decided that the only way I was going to be able to get anything done out there was to treat the first month like boot camp. So I had a special whistle called a Fox 40 Classic. The whistle was designed to be so ear-piercing that in these Olympic settings where, where these loud crowds are packed into gymnasiums, or in these huge stadiums, you could still hear this whistle. And so I trained that certain whistles were to line up, certain whistles were to do one thing and another thing. And so for about a month, there were a lot of tears. And I thought I might get fired. I said, just give me a month and we'll have this all worked out. Teachers would come out just to see it after it started working properly. They're like, I need one of those whistles in my classroom. But you know, um, one of the things I figured out dealing with so many different kids each and every day was that over time, as a general rule, and there are always exceptions, I could tell the parents' amount Of involvement in the child's life according to the kid's maturity level. If they were mature for their age, it almost always meant that the parents were very active in the child's life. It was the deciding factor more than any other, not the things that we think, it was not social status. It was not how much money someone had. It's the same thing whether the family was poor or whether they were wealthy. And many wealthy families didn't have hardly anything to do with their kids. And some of the poor families were really involved in their kids' lives. It didn't have anything to do with cultural background. It didn't have anything to do with anything. But if the parents were really engaged in parenting their children, involved in their lives, there was a greater maturity level. It was involvement that made all the difference you see you can't mature without involvement if we could do some kind of sick experiment and we could take a a a child and and give that child the best of everything the best learning the best teaching but but we did it from a distance and and on video, and nobody was really involved in that child's life in a a personal way. And they had all the resources, the finest food and the finest teaching and all of those things, but no contact with people. What you would have at the end of all of that is discontentment, a self-sort of doubt, and someone with stunted maturity. Maturity is not just about having the resources to do the things you want to do. Maturity always involves other people. We're not made to mature alone. That's not the way God has made it. It doesn't work that way. It cannot work that way. It's just not the way God has made us. You have a child that's left alone. Let's say you have totally unengaged parents and they just sort of appease and they let the child do whatever they want to do. You never say, look at how that process is maturing, that child. You get the exact opposite. You're like, parent that child, help that child. Because that's the way it works. What is true of emotional maturity is true of spiritual maturity as well. Now, I just shared with you our, our connect card, which which we talk about uh, what we believe are the essentials of growing in Christ together. And what is implied there is that you grow in Christ together. That the t- togetherness is a key part of that process. And what are those things? Church membership, accountability together, <clears throat> consistency in corporate worship, worshiping together in a small group, a Bible fellowship group, that smaller group accountability where we're in each other's lives together and ultimately service and mission. Not just simply being together, but serving together, working together, laboring together, advancing the Gospel together. Those things are essential for growing or maturing in Christ. We need each other. And not just the each others that we would pick out, You got that? But the each others that God picks out and places in the body that we would avoid, but now there they are. We're to look at each other and call each other family, the, the household of faith. We need each other. And the each others that we would never be around if it wasn't that God made us and each other together. Do you see that? Do you feel that? You see, as we've been studying Ephesians week by week, you're supposed to feel that. You're supposed to feel the inevitability of that. This is what God is doing. We we always think, always, that the people that it's difficult for us to be around are the problem. Most often, they are the solution. Because what needs to happen is not that... The things around you change according to your liking. What needs to happen is that we are to change according to the gospel. It's not that we control the circumstances. It means that we apply the gospel in the midst of our circumstances. We are meant to be together. The Apostle Paul started talking about unity in chapter 2, verses 11 and he continues that throughout the section that we're hearing today into chapter four, verses 11 through 16. It's a deal. It's vital. It's important. He wants it to be relentless and unavoidable, and you're thinking that this is a dominant theme of what it means to be the Church of Jesus Christ and to be those who, who walk worthy. If he, the, the word "one" keeps appearing, Ephesians 2:14, He made us both one. And He did that by tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. Ephesians 2.15, He might create in Himself one new man. Ephesians 2.16, Reconcile us both to God in one body. Ephesians 2.18, Access in one spirit to the Father. Ephesians 4.2, Bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4.4, 4, There's one body, one spirit, one hope. Four 4.5, There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians 4.6, There's one... God and Father of all Ephesians 3:10 that church that that one church that diverse church that Jew Gentile church that would naturally hate each other but now have come together as one according to the gospel of Jesus Christ he tells us in in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 that church exists in the world as a declaration to all who see it including the principalities and powers of the manifold wisdom of God The uniqueness of it all. The bringing together of what other things in the world cannot bring together is a testimony to the the wisdom of the triune God. We assemble here this morning as a living and visible witness to the wisdom of God. That's what we're a part of. That's what's going on here. If we were to take all of our pictures and put them, put them out there, and, and you think this group of people, this group of people is a sign of the defeat of Satan and all demonic power. This group, this is a declaration of spiritual victory in Christ. One day, this group will be assembled in a new heavens and new earth with all of the other groups that have been outposts of the kingdom. And the kingdom will be gathered. And that will be the ultimate triumphant gathering of the declaration that Christ has overcome by His blood and through His Word, it tells us in Revelation. Do you see this? Do you feel it? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, he quoted Psalm Sixty-eight, eighteen, and it was about a prayer for God's victory. And, and just like a, a king would go to win a victory for his people, he would take all of the goods and he would distribute them to his people. He would give gifts to men. God has come in, and in Christ, he is giving gifts to men. And, and he goes on to, to explain the primacy of the gospel and the unity of the church in the section we're looking at today. And he does so by, by explaining some of the gifts that God has given to birth and bless the churches in Ephesus, and by extension, all local churches since. It's another one of those run-on sentences, 124 words, one long sentence, as Paul just has this sense in which he keeps exploding with these particular truths. The first thing we see in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 is this, gospel unity, not uniformity. Look, look with me verse 11. And He gave. He's purposely picking up the language from chapter 4, verse 8. He gave gifts to men. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. He gave. He gave gifts. Gifts of leadership in this instance now now here here's what he's doing here Paul is saying okay we talk about the way I gift my people the way he he grants spiritual gifts to his people to to serve one another and to to build up the body here he says I want you to remember what I did to bring your church about why does this church exist he says to them And to us. He says, because I sent apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. That's why it exists. There's a plan here. There are a group of people who've performed all kinds of different roles who have come together, and they have come together and serving in their unique ways and their unique roles to produce this. Therefore, church, that is the way you are to exist, he says. There is a pastor teacher who is a gift that has been provided to you, but I've gifted all my people and they are to equip you to use your gifts. And as you use your gifts, the body is building and growing and this is what I'm doing, he says. Do, do you see how important it is? That it's unity, but not uniformity. I use that illustration at the very beginning of Ephesians, you had a football team, and you just said, I'm going to. I'm just going to recruit all the biggest guys I can find. Won't be a very good team. Team needs fast guys and big guys and skilled guys in certain ways and skilled guys in other ways. And you come together. There's a unity of what you're trying to accomplish. But the non-uniformity is the key to it working. He says, that's what I'm doing in the church. He he says... "Uh, uh, He gave apostles, now there's different ways apostles is used in the Bible, it means sent ones, but but the most particular way, and what he's getting at here is is those apostles who were instrumental to the the founding of the church, those who are described in Ephesians 2.20 as the foundation stones of the church in Christ is the cornerstone. Those who saw the resurrected Christ, who had this unique role of apostolic ministry and laying the foundation. And by the way, if, a, if it's laying a foundation, there, there is no other foundation. They had a unique role that was bound up for a particular time. And today, there are not apostles in the way these apostles were apostles. These were all eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But also, Paul, who got a supernatural revelation from the ascended Christ, and he is declared and a part of the apostles as well. These apostles, these foundation stones, the twelve and Paul. But, but it also says here, the prophets. A prophet is always a, a mouthpiece for God, a, a spokesperson for God, one who speaks the words of God. Now, apostles and prophets, some apostles did prophetic work, this is, uh, at a time where God was still revealing Himself in the Scripture. The Scripture was not yet complete. So there were apostles and prophets. There were apostles that were prophets. There were those attached to the apostles were, who were involved in bringing about the revelation of God. The Old Testament prophets declare the words of God. God continued to reveal Himself till ultimately the Scripture is complete. And it points us to Christ giving us all that we need. And so God provided uh, apostles and God provided prophets. These are the foundations of the church. And then he says the evangelist. There are only two references to anybody being an evangelist in the New Testament. One is Acts 21 verse 8 where Philip is described as an evangelist. The other is found in 2 Timothy 4 5, where the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is a, a gospeler, one who proclaims the good news. We, we don't know a lot here, but it doesn't seem to be the, the role that we think of as itinerant evangelists today that, that goes around. These were attached to churches, but they were involved in proclaiming the gospel to those who haven't heard. And they were also involved in protecting the gospel message, the truth of it within churches and outside of the churches. And they were attached to the apostles in some way in laying this foundation for the church. It seems that that was a part of the apostolic ministry as well. And then finally, the shepherds and teachers. Now now that's you notice it's not the shepherds and the teachers. This is not a separate role. This is pastor teacher, shepherd teacher. This is one role, what we think of today as pastor, are used synonymously in the New Testament with, with pastor or elder our overseer bishop. This is a particular role of shepherding the church through the proclamation of the Word of God. This role came about as the fulfillment of the the building of the church through the laying of the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ as the cornerstone, and the evangelists were a part of that, and these pastors are continuing the prophetic ministry in the sense not of receiving direct revelation of God, but preaching the revelation of God uncompromisingly, without apology, and without exception. And God is using the preaching of the Word to build His church. If you, if you think about all of those, those gifts that God gave, What's associated with all of them? The Word. Prophets proclaim the Word that becomes Scripture for us. Apostles came and, and, and preached the Gospel of Jesus Christ and, and clarified the mystery of the Gospel and how Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah. We have the apostolic witness and the apostolic writings. And now we gather in local churches and you come to hear somebody like me preach the Word of God to shepherd the congregation according to the truth of the Word. The the Word is at the center of it all. This shepherding ministry starts with God. God is shepherd. Genesis 49-24. Jesus is the good shepherd. John 10. The pastor is the shepherd of God's flock. Acts 20-28 and 1 Peter 5 2. Do you see how all of this works? Now, pastor, teacher. Teacher is a particular word that's used. It's associated with explaining the Bible, applying the Bible, exhorting on behalf of the, the scripture, appointing to the apostolic doctrine, this, this shepherd, teacher, shepherd who leads by teaching and, and preaching. But, but, but the point here is not the nuances of all of these offices, that's not why it's put here or He would have explained it more. This is put here because this is yelling to us. He gave gifts to men. They weren't the same. The apostles had a unique role. The prophets had a unique role. The evangelists had a unique role. The pastor teacher has a unique role. But all of this lays the foundation it builds doctrinal truth. It, it fulfills what has come before, and now it's proclaiming the truth of God in an ongoing ministry. Also different, but also completely unified. This is a part of God's one cosmic plan. This is a part of one God's one cosmic story that, in Christ, we're all swept into. Now, he's saying here, they build the church with. One person doing one thing. No, I raised up apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor-teachers. Why do you think i do that? Because that's what I'm doing. I'm building a body. And that whole body looks to the Son. He's the unity. Christ is our peace. Christ is the way. Christ is the truth. Christ is the life. So much so that early Christians were simply called people of the way. And what brings them together is not their sameness. What brings them together is that gospel of Jesus Christ. And all of their uniqueness and their diversity is surrendered to me. And I own their lives for my glory and bring them together. And together I accomplish what none of them could accomplish alone. Do you see it? But it doesn't just stop there. You see, all of this was done, verse 12, to equip. To equip. It means mending a broken bone. It means uh, uh, mending nets to be repaired uh, for fishing. It it means outfitting completely for a job with all the tools that are needed. There is a a restoring, a, a mending and outfitting that is going on as the Word of God is preached in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to equip the saints, those are believers, Christians, all of us who are in Christ, to equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. For the building up, the the strengthening, the, the growth of the body of the church. So often, If you hear the phrase ministry, your mind goes immediately to leadership. goes immediately to to pastors. It goes immediately there. When you and I hear ministry, we have to understand this. There is a sense of vocational call to preach the gospel in a, a formative way like this. But we are all called to ministry. Every last one of us. Not only are we all called to ministry, what Paul's taking great pains to say here is that we are all gifted for ministry. And the role of the pastor is not to to take over the ministry to make everything about him, that everything points to him. The role of the pastor is to make much of Jesus so much so that he kind of fades in the backgrounds and people are equipped to live their lives in freedom for Christ's sake. You see, it's not a healthy church that simply centers around the formal ministry of the church and that simply gathers around the leader of the church. Let me put it this way. A church is not a preaching point. It's not just a preaching point. It is never less than that. It is always more. Hear that. Oh, preaching matters. The church is birthed by preaching. We're sustained according to the words of God. Preaching is absolutely, fundamentally vital. But what is going on here is not just you coming here and passively listening to preaching and then going about your lives. You are being equipped to the point, hopefully and prayerfully, that you hear from Christ through the proclamation of the words in such a way that you aren't even thinking as much about the one who is proclaiming it. You're thinking about the one who is speaking to you through the proclamation of the word, which is Christ. And therefore, you are busy applying yourself to this gospel story in ways that have redirected your life because this stuff is true. You see, it is a quipped body that's a sign of a healthy church. That will not happen apart from faithful preaching. But faithful preaching is less than faithful preaching if that is not happening. Because it's a promise. You've got plenty of churches that are merely preaching points. It's sort of almost a self-righteous exercise. To say, I go to that church, that pastor tells it straight, but, but, but the communication is in such a way that you aren't really being pushed to apply yourselves to the truth. You're being patted on the back because you're willing to come here, bold preaching. And so we pat each other on the back and we say, oh, isn't it sad? Nobody else gets it like we do. Oh, man, let's let's go hear the truth again. All those other poor people out there hearing all this watered-down, compromised stuff, but but we hear the truth. If you think that's healthy, (laughs) self-righteousness is never healthy. And you can be self-righteous about anything. You can be self-righteous even about hearing the truth. I told... A guy one time, he was talking to me about things he was learning and this theology that was blowing his mind. I said, that's fantastic. What are you doing differently because you know that? His answer, his response was, what do you mean? (laughs) Oh, what do you mean? I I mean that if your mind and heart is blown by the sovereignty of God, you probably do do something different on Monday because it's true. And if you're not doing something different on Monday because it's true, then you're mocking the truth that you say is blowing your heart and mind. It's not. Some of the most self-righteous people I've ever known in my life spent all kinds of time studying theology. There is a knowledge that puffs up. But a healthy church means you hear the truth and you feel it because you know it means that, 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 that you need to reorder your life. You're not thinking about your neighbor in so much as when you feel convicted, but you're thinking about how you can encourage your neighbor, but you know that you've got to be a good, faithful, one another partner in this by applying the truth to your life. No healthy church is simply a preaching point. It is never less, but it is always more. There is a hospital for the sick, and there may be one who orchestrates the the plan of caring for people, but all the church is involved in carrying it out. It's a a gym to to strengthen us in our faith, and, and there may be one who is an instructor, but we are holding one another accountable. You see... In a healthy church culture, there is healing that happens, restoration that happens, there is empowering that happens, there is transforming that happens. In other words, the saints are equipped for the work of ministry. In a healthy church, pastors are faithful in proclaiming the Word, but it is embraced, cherished, and championed in a one another way. That means that the ministry that is done doesn't center on the one who proclaims it. It centers on the one who is being proclaimed. By the way, at Ashland, that's why we don't uh, we don't overprogram, And we don't try to confine you to our programming. And No! We have a Bible reading program we promote every year. And guess what? If you do a different one, great! You don't need to do the one we do. We, we give you opportunities to learn and grow, but, but if you've got other ways you're tapping into that ministry that you're doing, great! We're trying to liberate you. We're trying to live for Christ. We give you a bunch of footstools for that. But we're not trying to slow you down. We're trying to uh, compel you forward. And by the way, three people cannot do the work of ministry. Or four people or five people. And when they do, that doesn't cultivate unity. You show me a church that is just totally centered around the person who preaches. There isn't much going on in the body or much accountability to do it. It's just sort of self-righteous patting on the back that we believe the truth and nobody else does. I'll show you a bunch of people that end up arguing about what's true. It doesn't... but when you serve together, just think about this. you got a military unit. Before those guys go into battle, they find all kinds of stuff to argue about. They get on the battlefield, they quit arguing. Right? None of that seems so important anymore, man. We were in a foxhole together. I, I needed that guy. That guy loved me in service. We did stuff together that I can't imagine. We are bonded together in a way that causes all that other stuff to fade into the background. Do you see it? This produces gospel unity. I love what Calvin says about the power of the Word in the church. Calvin says... What is more excellent than to produce the true and complete perfection of the church, meaning the maturing of the church? And yet this work, so admirable, so divine, is here declared by the apostle to be accomplished by the external preaching of the word. And those who neglect this instrument should hope to become perfect in Christ or mature in Christ is utter madness. Yet such are fanatics on the one hand who pretend to be favored with secret revelation of the Spirit and proud men on the other who imagine that to them the private reading of Scripture is enough and that they have no need of the ordinary ministry of the church. Oh no, we need the ordinary ministry. We need to come. We need to sing. We need to pray. We need to hear the Word preached together. We need to gather together in smaller groups and we need to serve in countless ways that puts our faith to the test the living word empowering and animating a living people the church gospel unity not uniformity but in verses 13 through 16 we see gospel unity essential for maturity it's been implied this whole time but look at verses 13 and 14 it says that we are to grow up in Christ I love it, verse 13, until, until this is the purpose and the goal of all of this, until we all, that's all of us, all believers, till we attain, not that we create, but we attain to the unity of the faith. There are three things he says we we attain here. Unity of the faith, and then verse 13, mature manhood, and the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. But, But notice here this, This unity is creating maturity. We don't create the unity. The unity has been created by Christ. But what God has given is worked out in our lives in such a way that it becomes a part of our inner being and we give ourselves over to it. And when we live like that, it creates maturity. And when we are more mature, we are more unified. Until we attain the unity of the faith, here it is, and of the knowledge of the Son of God. You see, all of this centers on Christ. The the knowledge of the Son of God, the, the body of truth we have in the Word, the Scripture, all centers on this knowledge, the knowledge of the Son of God. You take Christ out of the Bible, it's a dark book. Christ in the Bible, it's the most glorious book in the history of the world. It is the very truth of God that tells us the good news. You see, the faith in the Scripture is all about Christ. We are to look to Christ. The unity that we have is unity in Christ. Without Him, it's not possible. We, because the unity is only found in Christ, when He brings us together, He's the head, we're His body. That means that, that, that we find this unity and maturity together. He's never designed that we find it alone. He says, to mature manhood. The, the word means... Um, Something that comes to its appointed end. You, you're not supposed to stay a baby forever. The goal is adulthood. You're to achieve maturity. That's the idea, to, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature. That usually height and age, fullness, the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ is the perfect man. Christ is Wisdom personified, Christ is maturity. This is a call to Christ's likeness. We are to be a people who are growing together in Him, the unity of the faith lived out together, centering on Christ and Him alone, which changes us. Let me give you an example here. The, the, the word actually used here in of the knowledge of the Son of God is there's a word for knowledge, gnosis. This word has a little intensifier on the front of it, epinosis. Meaning, okay, there's knowledge and then there's knowledge. There's knowledge of stuff that you know and then there's knowledge of stuff that you've come under the power of. You know, uh, a lot of preachers... uh, uh, torment themselves about, was that sermon good? I, I wonder how people took it all. It wasn't good. And Man, did somebody compliment me or did they not? And, and it's easy to get trapped in, in all of that and sort of you're in this constant sort of making it about you and how it's received and, and that's immaturity. Now, I, you can hear all your life that, listen, preaching is ultimately what God is doing. You've just got to be faithful. It's not really about you, you can't make anything happen, lean into the Spirit. Now, now, you can hear all those things, but not lean into them. But you know, sometimes there's something that happens, and there's a moment where you go from knowing to epi-knowing, from gnosis to epinosis. And when you get to that point, when, when, when the truth becomes something that you come under the power of, then you can, as a pastor, you can really just stand up and preach and go home. Do everything you can to preach the most faithful sermon you can. But not acting like it's a referendum and that you so need the sort of affirmation and and the sort of validation. If you're a pastor... Your validation was your call. And if a church recognizes that call, that's a double validation. And if the church thinks that you're unfaithful to your call, then they need to get rid of you. Until then, you can preach in freedom. And guess what? If you think the other way, somebody else preaches and you're like, oh man, he preaches better than me. And Do uh, you see how binding that is? And you see how disunifying it is? You show me a pastor who doesn't want to put anybody else in the pulpit who's really good at preaching, I'll show an insecure, immature guy who ought not be in the pulpit himself. You hear great preaching, it ought to be, yes! It's not like it's not a comparison with you. That's not what's going on. But you do, we do that in all kinds of our lives in all kinds of ways. You see, that, that spotlight is so on us and, and our measuring ourself and our value and our worth and, and and why what we do. No, he's liberating from that. He says, grow up in Christ. Growing up means you're not completely self-focused and saturated. And that's what he goes to next. Verse 14, so that, here's the purpose clause, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and human cunning. By craftiness and deceitful schemes. By the way, Paul loves a mixed metaphor. Here's what he says. Don't be babies on an open boat driven around by the wind and waves uh, uh, subject to the whims of people rolling dice. What? Yeah, He loves a mixed metaphor. Just throw it all in there together so you get it. The, The aim here is that you would eventually get out of babyhood. All Christians are spiritual babies at some times, but you are to grow and mature into adulthood. At 1 Corinthians 3.1, Paul essentially says, don't stay babies in Christ. He's focused on the critique here of childishness, not child which is always spoken of positively in the Bible. Childishness. Paul says, don't be babies. And then he tells us what babies are like. They get tossed to and fro. They get captured so easy by every wind that comes up. Here he says wind of doctrine. They're easily trapped by human cunning, by, by craftiness. So the, the, the word here is a word for dice playing. And, and there were so many who knew how to use the dice in a way that cheated gullible people that it became to use a word that, for deceit itself. And here it says deceitful schemes. There are those who are easy prey because they are gullible. This is the way babies and children are. We had two grandkids at the house. One is a little bitty infant uh, this week, and one is a a two-year-old. And and guess what? I'm watching Sarah Hope with the two-year-old, and the two-year-old is going, "Ah, no, it's terrible. Yeah, like the world's ending. And Sarah Hope says, You want to eat? And she said, Yeah. And smiled. You're like, what? That's the way children are. Immediately jerked away. You, you, you have a child, you're, you're trying to teach them baseball and there's a butterfly. Right? you just drifting around like by all these things and, and, and looking around and, and that's the way children are. And that's okay, but they're supposed to grow out of it. He says that's the way a lot of believers are. You're not meant to be spiritual babies. You're meant to be stable and rooted and grounded. You're not meant to be gullible. I'm so amazed at Christians who are are so gullible. There's some that they're on every fad that comes out there promising every amazing thing. Listen, there is no powder you're going to buy online that's going to keep you free from cancer, make you happier, make you smarter, make your brain fog less. It doesn't exist. Stop it. You should be freed from all that sort of pursuit of that kind of stuff. Don't be gullible. I love it when my kids are little and they're gullible. One time I'm driving down the road with one of them, and I closed one eye and kept the other one open. They were in the passenger seat. And I said, I know this street. It was Nicholasville Road. I know this street so well, I can drive it with my eyes closed. And she's going, Dad, open your eyes. I'm going, gotcha. One time I was trying to trick one of my younger kids. There was a sporting event going on and they had a roof that they were closing because of bad weather. And I said, Man, I hope they get that roof closed before before they catch one of those clouds in there. Because if they catch a cloud before they close the roof, it'll rain inside anyway. And one of my older kids said, Really? <laughs> Grow up! His message here is to grow up in Christ. This fixation that all of us possess on the knowledge of the Son of God, on Jesus, binds us together despite our differences and causes us to mature in Him. You see, we aren't looking for other places to put our anchor. It's already in Christ. And this keeps us from all those things that are promising stuff out there that are ridiculous. The gospel should bring stability to our lives. And our church community is to be a community that helps bring peace, security, and balance to your life. It's to ground us and to compel us. The number one complaint people have today and all these studies that are done is that they are lonely, and all of these problems arise because of of loneliness and feeling like you're out there by yourself, brothers and sisters we're not lonely. we have a big family, but it's a big family that we have a responsibility to, but it but it's one that ought to produce you know. Over and over, people go through a tragedy, and I have Christians look at me and say with tears in their eyes. And you can tell they mean it from the very pit of their being. And they'll say, I don't know how I could go through this without my church family. Right, you don't have to. This is the way this works. This is what we're doing in one another's so There is stability in the midst of the chaos because we have Christ and we have each other. We look to Christ together and that grounds all of us. Now, he goes back to the spiritual gifts he gives all believers. You see, these gifts of leaders are to equip all the believers to use their gifts in the body. Verses 15 and 16. He says, grow up truthing in love. Verse 15. Rather. It's a contrast. Speaking the truth in love. Now, we translate this this way because we don't have a word for truthing. A a participle here. The, the, The Greek, the verb here covers speech and action. He is not just simply talking about speaking here, though he is talking about speaking. He's talking about speaking and action. The church is to be the community that is truthing in love. It's not just what we say, it's what we do. John 3.21 says, He who does the truth. That's the idea here. But the thing here is truthing in love. The heart of Christian living in love. This Christian commitment to truth that we are to have that should always be scandalous to others. That, that should always be so weird and so strange to others because it is always in love. You see, even when you and I speak the truth in the face of those who would oppose us and who have declared ourselves our enemies, we are commanded to love our enemies. So we can tell them the truth, they can speak harshly to us, and we can love them anyway. And all the way down through the ages, Christians have had this powerful witness because they didn't just love their own people, let's say, when the plagues came. They loved and cared for everybody. Speaking the truth in love or truthing in love. It's powerful. By the way, the message here is to Jews and Gentiles. You see, the outside people are looking at them and going, now whatever this message about the way and all this stuff, what are you doing together? That's not right. Right? It's supposed to be scandalous. It's supposed to be, why are you like that? told you one time we had a neighbor when I was in seminary in Texas, and he was a little bit off his rocker. But he, we had a dog. He hated the dog. He yelled at the dog all the time. He cursed us out all the time. And I said, you just don't curse my wife, and we're cool. So he walks, on the door, uh, knock, walks over one day, knocks on the door, and he just lets out a spew of profanities. And so I said, Gene, I hope you feel better now that you got that off your chest. Do you want to come in and have a drink, and, and I'll fix you something to eat? He said, "Why don't you get mad like normal people?" <laughs> well, I'd like to tell you about that, Gene. By the way, I do I had to get mad plenty, but I'd worked it out with him. right? It's supposed to be weird. You're not just simply the product of your gut and your emotions. The love of Christ, the Bible tells us, Paul says elsewhere, compels us, constrains us, controls us. It's supposed to be weird. And there's an incredible blessing of being around others truthing in love that empowers us to be all the more bold of speaking the truth in love. Notice he says here, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, no part of our lives are severed from Christ, into Him who is the head into Christ. Now, if you think about a baby's head, a lot of times they have to grow into their head. The head is disproportionately big. We had one of our grandkids who's was extra disproportionately big, and I'd always laugh because he learned to walk. If a head ever got off center with his hips, it was. So the head, and I say, like, not too long ago, he's at the house. I say, like, he finally grew into that head. We're being called here. The, the head is Christ. We're We're immature. We're We're not fit for Christ, but we're to be growing up in every way as a people are committed to truthing and love together. He is the center, the goal, the purpose, and the end for which we exist. We are to be those who grow up into the head, into Christ. Verse 16, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint which is equipped, which it is equipped, outfitted, restored, made complete. When each part is working properly, or it could be translated here, when each one does his own work, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, this is the love of Christ that centers on Christ and the Gospel. But when there's a people centered on Christ and the Gospel who are unified because of that, who spend their time truthing in love among one another, that very act of truthing in love, unified under the Gospel of Jesus Christ, produces growth and maturity. Notice what he doesn't say produces growth and and maturity. Oh, you need need a lot of money. You need glamorous programs. You just hadn't tried this technology. None of that is tied to church growth here. None of it. None of it. You see, it's not about one part of the body overperforming. It's not about a part of the body underperforming. What we need is everybody to do their part sustained by the head Christ, just simply content to do our part knowing that God owns that for His glory, the the building itself up in love, the body growing. Here it is. If you've checked out, check back in. Our maturity in Christ is dependent upon each other. For me to mature in the way I need to I need you to serve and use your gifting in the way you're called to. And you need me to serve and use my gifting in the way I'm called to. And the more of us do that, we create a culture and an atmosphere where we mature more. I can't tell you how many people have been going through some difficult time in their life and they've been totally uh, responding to it in a terrible way. And I'm trying to help them think about it and, and, and to counsel with them. And one of the ways I ask them is, you know, how are you serving Christ through this? And they act like it's the craziest question. I can't serve Christ. I'm going through this. This is all that matters. Well, If that is all that matters, there is no solution. It is never that. It's all that matters. You show me somebody who doesn't serve in any way in the context of the church. And they come, and it doesn't matter how much they act like they love the preaching and teaching. I'll show you somebody who's headed for a shipwreck. We are made to live it out among each other. We are made to be truthing in love. I need to see you truthing in love. You need to see me truthing in love. You need to see me exercising my gifts. I need to see you exercising your gifts. We need to be serving one another. Our maturity is tied to one another. After all, that makes perfect sense. We're a family. A child's maturity is tied to the behavior of mom and dad. It makes perfect sense. We should understand it. But let me be very clear. All of this takes nothing glamorous, nothing fancy, no degrees, no bushels of money, no technology, no programs. All it takes is a people who love the Word and love Christ and love each other. And therefore, they live their lives truthing in love with each other for the glory of Christ no matter what. Where that is happening... There is a church that is growing, that's being built up, and there are people who are becoming mature in Christ. And where it's not happening, no matter what other bells and whistles you've got, you don't have spiritual maturity. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You so much for Your perfect and precious Word. I thank You for these gathered here today. Lord, I pray for those who don't know where they stand before You, that they would look to Christ. Lord, I plead with them, In the name of Christ, to throw themselves on your mercy. To put their faith in the one who was crucified, dead and buried, but is risen and ascended now as the only hope of their salvation. And Lord, I pray for all of us. May this be a day of spiritual growth. And may the growth here continue. May this be a body where it can be said, they are so weird. The way they truth and love to one another, and before a watching world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.